0: This is Cabernet and True Crime, the place where good wine and true crime come together Yello, party people. Welcome to True Crime Tuesday. I'm your host, Jana. <laughs> um if you listen to the serial killer short episode, I'm still feeling kinda like trash. Um so I didn't get the researching done that I wanted to do. And luckily, as I've said before, this is my podcast and I will do with it what I please. Um. So your regular, your regular recorded podcast, what? <laughs> your regular scheduled content uh, has been moved. And today we're going to be in another installation of the episodes called Jana recorded this or recorded researched this a year ago and now you get to listen to it now because it was a blog and nobody read it um you know a short story I you know haven't felt all that great kind of kind of burned out kind of kind of you know tired so (laughs) this might be a struggle bus um I'm going to be reading an old blog post you know the drill um so this one ironically is like once again the term favorite serial killer is probably not the right word to use but um i remember this one being one that i really i really enjoyed researching um because the rabbit hole on this one goes so deep that um this is truly one of those stories of someone who fundamentally has something very wrong with them it's not somebody killing just to be evil it's somebody who who you almost, to some extent, feel a little bad for, um, if I do recall correctly. Um, I just, this is one of those ones that I really enjoyed researching, so I hope you guys enjoy listening to it. Um, you know, (laughs) oh man, it's been, it's been a week, guys, so let's just get into it before... I get too weird from the day quill. Cool. Okay, let's just let's just start. Okay. So on February eighth, nineteen eighty-three, Michael Catran, a dineron employee, arrived at twenty three D Cranley Gardens, London to respond to complaints of the drains being blocked. He opened a drain cover at the side of the house and discovered the drain was packed with a flesh-like substance and numerous small bones. The employee reported the finding to the employee reported the finding to his supervisor, Gary Wheeler. When Wheeler arrived at the property around dusk that same evening, both men decided to postpone the investigation of the blockage until the following morning. At 7.30 a.m., Wheeler and Catran arrived to the property again to continue their investigation of the drain. By this time, the drain had been completely cleared, which aroused some suspicions. Catran was able to see some scraps of flesh and four small bones in a pipe leading uh, from the attic apartment of the home. The Dino Rudd employees called the police who upon further inspection found even more bones and flesh. To the naked eye, they appeared to be human or animal flesh and the remains were taken to be evaluated. They were definitely human. Police waited outside the attic flat of 23 Cranley Gardens waiting for the tenant, Dennis Andrew Nilsson to arrive home from work. When he showed up, Detective Chief Inspector Police J and two colleagues informed Nielsen that they were police and interested in discussing the contents of his drain. Nilsen was curious as to why police would have any interest in his drains. When the three officers entered Nilsen's flat, the smell of rotting flesh hit them like a sack of bricks. Nilsen asked, again, why the police were interested in his drains. DCI J told Nilsen that the blockage was from human remains, and that's when the facade fails. Nelson acted surprised, but DCI Jay wasn't playing any games. He asked where the rest of the body was, and Nelson confessed, stating that the rest of the body was in a nearby wardrobe and that that was where the smell was coming from. Jay then asked if there were any more bodies in the flat. Nelson said, It's a long story. It goes back a long time. I'll tell, it, I'll tell you everything. I want to get it off my chest. Not here. At the police station. Nelson was arrested, cautioned, and taken to the police station. On the trip to the station, Nilsen was asked whether the bodies were from one person or two. Gazing out the window, he responded, 15 or 16 since 1978. Dennis Andrew Nilsen was born on November 23rd, 1945 in Scotland. He was the middle of three children, born to parents, Olav Magnus Mokshin, later Nilsen, who was a native of Norway and Elizabeth White. His parents had a tumultuous relationship at best Nelson's father hardly provided for the family, nor made time for them, and Elizabeth and her three children lived with her parents. The marriage ended unceremoniously, unceremoniously after the birth of their third child, Sylvia, in 1948. Dennis was an adventurous child and was raised with the help of his maternal grandparents. After the divorce, Elizabeth remained with her family and relied on their assistance. Nelson, however, would describe his childhood as a time of happiness and contentment, He saw his grandfather as a great hero and protector. Nilsen very much looked up to his pseudo-father figure. He had no tactile relationship with his mother. In 1951, Nilsen's grandfather's health began to decline, albeit he was still working regularly. On Halloween of that year, Andrew White died of a heart attack while working as a fisherman in the North Sea. He was only 62 years old. His body was brought back home and returned to the family. Nilsen, in his adult years, remembered this as one of the most vivid memories of his childhood. Before seeing his grandfather's body, Nilsen was unaware that he was even dead. No one had prepared him for the sight of his deceased hero. Many forensic psychologists think this is where the break happens for Dennis Nilsen. He was a relatively, air quotes, normal boy up until this point. Following the death of his grandfather, Nelson became very withdrawn and reserved. He spent a significant time alone at the harbor watching boats surf by. He rarely participated with the family and pushed away any form of affection. Alternatively, though, he was jealous of the attention his siblings received from his mother, grandma, and after Elizabeth Ramirez, his stepfather. He was greatly envious of his brother, Olaf, primarily his popularity, but he got on well enough with his sister, Sylvia. And it seems like I kind of glossed over um, how just how badly Dennis took his grandfather dying. I mean, could you imagine like loving someone so much and knowing that that person was your hero and like, you know, you really, really looked up to that person and then not even knowing they're dead and then being presented like then going to their funeral? And, like, not the the first time you're processing that this person that you love so much is dead is by seeing them in their coffin. Like, that, like, I feel that could be glossed over as something. But could you imagine being, like, a little kid and I just couldn't even begin to fathom how difficult that would have been. And, I mean, that's, that has to be emotionally scarring on several different levels, you know. Especially, like, how could you trust your mother again after that? After she didn't even forewarn you like that's what you were going to do. You didn't even know they were dead. Um, But also, how do you keep that a secret? I mean, I'm assuming everybody was distraught, so maybe he didn't realize at the end of the day. I'm not sure how that happens, but um, I could definitely see that being a major... If somebody was already internally troubled and then having that happen, I could see that being very much left untreated without any therapy or counseling or anything to try and get through that moment that could definitely, like, really fuck somebody up for, I mean, I'm not saying people (laughs) that happens to kill people, like, I don't think that's, like, the ultimate thing, but I could see him being very troubled overall. Um, okay, so in 1954, Dennis was out on the beach by himself. He was accidentally submerged and almost dragged out to sea. When he was on the verge of drowning, he believed his grandpa was going to arrive at the last second and pull him out, thinking he was being saved by his idol, Dennis said he felt a great tranquility. He was saved by another beachgoer. After the accident, Elizabeth moved out of her parents' home and into a flat in Strichen, Strichen? I'm not sure how to pronounce that. Um, she married Andrew Scott and subsequently had four more children. Nelson resented his stepdad, but ultimately, if not grudgingly, grew to respect him. With the onset of puberty, Dennis began to suspect he was a homosexual. Um, he kept his sexuality a secret from his family and friends, as well as um, his as well as this nudging discovery. Nilsson also, on separate occasions, separately fondled his younger sister, um, or sorry, sexually fondled his younger sister as well as his older brother. Although Olav was sleeping, he began to suspect his brother's curiosity, and often referred to him as a hen in public. Dennis found Striking stifling and began to resent his family. He respected that his parents were trying to provide for him, but his household was poorer than most in the area. In an attempt to escape the stifling rural environment, he joined the army cadet force at 14, seeing the British army as an escape. Nelson was above average scholastically, but not physically. He passed the entrance exams to enlist in the army in 1961 and enlisted to become a chef. While here, however, his homosexual feelings began to stir with more force, he would often shower alone for fear of getting an erection during the group shower, and showering in private had the advantage of giving him him time to masturbate undetected. 3 years later while deployed in West Germany Nilsson's drinking began to pick up speed. Once a casual drinker, he would now drink excessively to combat his shyness. One drunken evening he went home with a young male, um with a young male German youth. When he awoke, nothing sexual had happened, but he began to fantasize, specifically about a young, slender male um being completely passive in his presence. The fantasy grew darker, evolving from his partner being unconscious to possibly dead. After this, Nelson would pretend to get excessively drunk in hopes that his colleagues would take advantage of his, quote, vulnerable body. Um, so that kind of, in my head, goes back to, like, he was very obviously troubled to begin with. And then you have um, this kind of pooling of his grandpa being dead, he loved him very much, he saw the peace and tranquility of being dead, cool. Um, and then you go into he's also having homosexual tendencies, probably an environment where he is not actively allowed to express those homosexual fantasies, where it's not accepted. And then you have a brother who you've always kind of idolized and who's the popular one of your family making fun of you for your you know, he's being ridiculed for how he feels about things. And I think at this point, Dennis has a lot of, a lot of issues kind of creating like the perfect storm. You know, he's got some trauma mixed with ridicule, mixed with embarrassment and everything I think at the end of the day of what he's doing he's trying I I feel like he was trying to be a normal person for the most part but he's got these he's being weird and nobody's helping him or like addressing the fact that he's being weird in the right way like he's I'm no I'm not I just wanted to make I'm not defending him by any means he's a bad person obviously he kills people like that's beyond it but I'm saying if you look at the background of Dennis Nelson and seeing where he where this is all kind of coming from Like, this is one of those cases, in my personal opinion, where he could have been stopped. You know what I'm saying? Like, if he had a mother figure who maybe addressed these types of things, or people, instead of making fun of him for being weird, were like, hey, Denny, why don't we, you know, address the issues here at hand? Like, I think these are things that had they been noticed earlier, and if these traumas wouldn't have happened, it's very possible that Dennis Andrew Nelson would have grown up to be just a normal, normal old dude. And, you know, he would have lived his life. He wouldn't have murdered anybody. These are the one cases where, like, he's not, he didn't, like, kill puppies. He wasn't setting fires. He wasn't doing anything, like, inherently destructive as a young kid. I, this is one of those cases of, is evil born bad? Or is it, or like, are people born evil or is it created? I think this is one of those things where it was created. His environment made him who he who he became because there was a lot of things that went left untreated, a lot of issues that were sloughed off or ignored. And it's just it's culminating into what he's going to become because he is a fucked up person who is just getting continuously more fucked up. you know. So like I'm saying, I'm gonna say I'm not defending him by any by any means, and I don't want to sympathize a serial killer, but at the same point in time, this could have been prevented, in my honest opinion. Right? Cool. Just want to just clarify that I'm not defending him by any means, but I, it it it's fascinating to me when there are people like this who, had they grown up in a different environment with people who... And I mean, okay, to be the devil's advocate, you know what? He might have still killed people. That's, that's just human nature. Like, you don't know how people inherently are not always predictable. So maybe, you know, Dennis Andrew Nielsen would have ended up killing people. But I think there are a lot of missed opportunities here where somebody could have stepped in and been like, hey buddy, (laughs) let's talk about what's going on. You know, I think if he had had a more supportive family, but to be fair, he did shut most of his family out. But I think if somebody had stepped up and like really like maybe if Dennis's grandpa never died, like maybe this wouldn't have been an issue maybe none of this would ever happen. It's like all these things fell into place to create like the perfect storm for him. So that's what's fascinating about this to me. The psychology behind serial killers is ultimately what is the most fascinating to me. This person, like I said, was not evil, was not setting puppies on fire, or doing anything as a kid. Like he wasn't just this asshole kid who just wanted to murder people. He was like a normal shy kind of boy who grows into a monster, and. Something about that is just so fascinating to me—the missed opportunities to stop serial killers. Okay, I'll step off my, <laughs> I'll step off my pedestal on that. Okay, so in 1967, um, Dennis was deployed to Aden, South Yemen, where he cooked at Al Mansoura Prison. While stationed there, Nelson had his own room and was able to fantasize freely. Um, by now, his fantasies included sex with um, a non-resistant or deceased partner. So he's escalated in his fantasies. He would look at himself in a freestanding mirror, and if angled a certain way, could pretend he was with another man. He believed he could visually split his personality. Um, so basically, I didn't. I don't feel like I worded this very well, which is why I'm glad I'm doing it as a podcast, because then I can just kind of explain. I was wording this so somebody could read it. Um, Basically, he would, like, almost lay in a way where he would, like, lay where he couldn't see his own face and, like, touch himself, but it looked like to him that he was touching somebody else. It wasn't him. And he had this... Dennis Andrew Nelson was very skinny, kind of pale, um, just kind of a spindly, spindly guy. So he almost found himself to be, like, the most attractive like vulnerable man you know he could he could imagine himself being that way um, he was also fond of imagining the classic art piece um, it's called the Raft of Medusa while masturbating um, the piece depicts an old man holding the limp nude body of a dead youth as he sits beside the dismembered body of another young male um, I think if you look it up it's an interesting picture uh, kind of weird to masturbate to, but I mean, right now, we are not, right now, this dude just has some weird kinks, and, like, that, you know, it's, obviously, whatever, your kinks are your kinks, like, I'm not here to kink shame anybody, but, like, at this point, he's just doing himself, and he's not, he's not hurting anybody right now, um, if you neglect, or if you kind of erase what you shouldn't, but, like, if you ignore the fact of what he did to his sister and his brother, which is fucked up, but, like, as of right now, he's just kind of, doing him, no pun intended. So, it hasn't escalated anything bad yet. Um, In 1969, Nilsson had his first sexual encounter with a woman, um, a sex worker he solicited. He would later recount the experience as, quote, overrated and depressing. (laughs) All right. Um, After a few more placements, he retired as a corporal in October of 1972, He lived with his mother and stepfather after his deployment from October to December of 1972 um, to contemplate his next career move. His mother was pressuring him to settle down and find a, quote, nice girl to start a family with. Olaf Jr. informed their mother that Dennis was a homosexual and Dennis never spoke to his sibling again and maintained a tense and sporadic relationship with the rest of his family. Um, Dennis moved to London in December to join the Metropolitan Police. Dennis would frequent gay bars, although he hated the casual sex aspect and longed for a lasting relationship. Due to a personal-professional conflict, he resigned from the police a year after he joined, but remained in London. In November of 1975, Nilsen saved 20-year-old David Galachin from a pub brawl and took him home. After a couple of drinks, Dennis finds out that David is unemployed and residing in a hostel and offers for the two to live together. After a short discussion, they decide they need somewhere with more space, and a few days after, they find their new home, 195 Melrose Avenue in London. When signing the papers, Dennis made an agreement with the landlord that he and David had exclusive use of the back garden of the property. Although they lived together, the relationship between Galachan and Nilsson was strained and hardly sexual. They both had separate, casual sex partners they would bring home, and Nilsson would often break Galachan for one reason or another. In May 1977, David Galachan moved out. After the next oh, Over the next year and a half, Nilsen had several relationships, but none of them lasted more than a few weeks. After living in solitary existence for such an extended um, amount of time, Nilsen began to develop a complex that he was unfit to live with. In this time, he put significant time and effort into his work and spent his evenings alone drinking. So now you've got Dennis. He's had a bunch of failed relationships. So now you've got this hopeless romantic who really just wants to find somebody to love but isn't really working on relationships. And now he feels scorned because he's not having these relationships that seem to work for him. And the bad news is that now he he's already he's already got so many complexes, he's already so messed up and now he's turning to drinking and he feels like he's scorned. He feels like A hopeless romantic who feels like they'll they'll never have love, so what's the point type deal. On December 30th, 1978, Dennis Nelson was having a normal evening, um, which was sitting around his house and drinking heavily. Um, But this night, unlike other nights, he left his flat in search of company. He ended up at the Cricklewood Arms pub and saw 14-year-old Stephen Holmes trying to purchase alcohol illegally. After he was rejected, Nelson invited Holmes to his house for booze. The two drank several cocktails and fell asleep together in Nelson’s bed, and in the morning, Dennis was surprised to see his companion still fast asleep. Nelson would later say that at the time, he was afraid to wake the boy, thinking he would leave and never come back. With this thought, Nelson straddled the teen while he was still asleep, grabbed a necktie, and strangled him until he was unconscious, and then drowned him in a bucket filled with water. Nelson masturbated twice over the body and then stored the body under the floorboards. Nelson kept Stephen Holmes's body for almost eight months. It wasn't until after Nelson was caught that anyone would really know what he did to each of his victims. But it appeared Stephen Holmes was special to Dennis. He would later recall the memory in writing. Um. So this is actually a quote from Dennis Nelson's diary. I think. Um. So these are his words. Um. I eased him into his new bed which was beneath the floorboards. A week later, I wondered whether his body had changed at all or had started to decompose. I disinterred him and pulled the dirt-stained youth up onto the floor. His skin was very dirty. I stripped myself naked and carried him into the bathroom and washed the body. There was a there was partic- practically no discoloration, and his skin was pale white. His limbs were more relaxed than when I had put him down there. Um... Holmes's body was burned in a bonfire on August 11th, 1979. His remains weren't identified until 2006. Um, That's only a small window into the horrors that were to follow. Um. So once again, you see the common theme of, like, I don't think Dennis Nilsen fundamentally understands the difference between, like, somebody being dead... Like, for him, it almost seems like death is, like, a peaceful, relaxing, beautiful thing. Which, when you're murdering people, to attain that is bad, obviously. Um, so, exactly two months after Nilsen burned Stephen Holmes's body, um, he met an ex- exchange student from Hong Kong named Andrew Ho. They ran into each other at St. Martin's Lane Pub, and Ho was lured to Nilsen's home on the promise of sex. Nelson attempted to strangle Ho, but the would-be victim was able to flee and reported the incident to police. However, no charges were ever filed. On December 3rd, 1979, Kenneth Ockenden, a Canadian student on a tour of England, was sitting in a West End pub. Nelson struck up a conversation with him, and learning he was a tourist, offered to show him the sights London had to offer. They stopped at a liquor store to pick up whiskey, rum, and beer, and ultimately arrived at the 195 Melrose Avenue home. Ackenden was strangled with his headphone cords as he listened to a record. After he was dead, Nilsen poured himself a glass of rum and continued to listen to music through the headphones he used to murder Ackenden with. The next day, Nilsson purchased a Polaroid camera and took pictures of the body in various suggestive positions and laid his body spread eagle on the bed. Um, He then wrapped his body in a plastic bag and stored the corpse beneath the floorboards. On at least four occasions, Nelson would bring the body back out and set it in the armchair next to him while he drank and watched television. In May of 1980, 16-year-old Martin Duffy had hitchhiked his way to London without telling his parents. The teen had gotten into little trouble for evading his train fare and slept for four nights outdoors near a rail station. Nelson was returning from work um, on, a, on that very train and spotted Duffy. He offered him a hot meal and a place to stay for the evening, and Duffy happily accepted. After Martin had fallen asleep—Martin Duffy. I realize that seems kind of weird, but Martin Duffy was his name. After Martin fell asleep, um, Nilsson wrapped a ligature around Duffy's neck and then sat on his chest. Nilsson would gra- grip until Duffy was unconscious and then drowned him in the kitchen sink. After drowning the boy, Nilsson bathed the body and then first placed him on a kitchen chair and then on the bed, which he'd been strangled. Nilsen kissed and caressed the body and then masturbated onto it. Martin Duffy was stowed in a cupboard in the kitchen until Nilsen noticed his body began to bloat and then, quote, he went right under the floorboards. Before the end of 1980, Nilsen would successfully kill five more people with an additional attempted murder. Only one of the bodies has ever been identified as William David Sutherland. Nilsen didn't recall the victims themselves, but how he had killed them and how long he had kept the body before dissection. Not surprisingly, the bodies be- beneath the floorboards began to attract insects and the odor was unimaginable, especially in the summer. Nelson noted the eye socket had maggots crawling out of them and the bodies were covered in pupa. He tried to cover the smell with deodorants and was spraying his flat twice a day with insecticide, but the effort was no match for the increasing problem beneath the floor. In 1980, Nelson pulled the seven bodies out from under the floorboard and burned them in a bonfire in his backyard. He threw an old car tire into the flames to disguise the smell of burning flesh. After the flames had subsided, and when it was dark, he took a rake to the debris to eliminate any obvious bones. In January of 1981, Nelson claimed two more victims and had taken January 12th off work so he was able to dissect both bodies. By April, he acquired two more unidentified victims. All of the bodies were burned ritualistically as before. Nilsen would later reflect on his lifestyle during this time, the height of his murdering spree, and this is also a direct quote from Dennis Nilsen. End of the day, end of the drink, end of a person. Floorboards back, carpet replaced, and back to work on Denmark Street. On September 17, 1981, Nilsen found 23-year-old Malcolm Barlow slumped outside his home. He aided Barlow inside and called for an ambulance after learning Barlow had epilepsy and his medication caused his legs to grow weak. Barlow was released from the hospital the next day and returned to 195 Melrose to thank Dennis Nelson for helping him. Nelson offered for him to come inside and have a drink. After a few rum and cokes, Barlow had fallen asleep on Nelson's couch. Nelson manually strangled Barlow as he slept and stored his body under the kitchen sink until the next day. Shortly before the final murder at this residence, Nelson's landlord decided to renovate and needed Nelson to vacate the property. After a thousand pound bribe, Nilsen moved into the attic apartment at 23D Cranley Gardens on October 5, 1981. He had another large bonfire in his backyard to eliminate Barlow's body just before he moved out. After his move um, to Muswell Hill, Nilsen didn't commit any murders for almost two months. He had no backyard and due to him living in an attic flat, he was unable to pull up the floorboards to stow bodies. He attempted to strangle a 19-year-old student named Paul Hobbs on November 23, 1981, but refrained, him, but refrained himself from completing the act. In March of 1982, Nilsson met John Howlett at a pub by his new residence. Howlett came back to Nilsson's home to continue drinking. Howlett fell asleep and Nilsson sat at the edge of the bed sipping on a glass of rum before coming to the conclusion to kill him. Unfortunately for Nilsson, Howlett was a fighter and it took three unsuccessful t- attempts to strangle him. Ultimately, he gave up on the strangling method and Nilsson filled a bathtub and drowned John. Nilsson's own neck was bruised with Howlett's finger impressions for the following week. Two months later, Nilsson met 21-year-old Carl Stoder at the Black Cap in Camden. Nilsson lured him with the promise of liquor, per usual. After Stoder fell asleep, Nilsson tried to strangle him, but Carl kept waking up. Nelson then tried to drown him, and after thinking he was dead, moved him to the armchair. When Nelson realized, in fact, his victim was not dead, he proceeded to revive him. Nelson told the lie that Carl was being strangled by the zip and a sleeping bag, and he had saved his life. After two more days of keeping Carl in his home, Nelson walked him to a railway station and said his goodbyes. Nelson attributed his failing to kill, um, to kill Carl based to heavy intoxication. In October nelson meets graham allen and strangled him after inviting him into his home nelson kept allen in the bathtub for three days before dissecting his body on the kitchen floor finally on january 26 1983 nelson's killing spree is almost to an end dennis meets 20 year old stephen sinclair whom he has invited into his flat under the same premise as everyone else sinclair was strangled with a makeshift ligature made from a necktie and rope after the murder, Nelson lays Sinclair's body on the bed, applied talcum powder to his body and then arranged three mirrors around the two of them. Nelson kissed the body on the forehead and falls asleep naked beside it. The same ritual with the previous body follows and the body is dissected and the smaller bones and flesh are flushed down the toilet. Police found Sinclair's head, upper torso and arms in a tea chest in Nelson's living room. His torso and legs were stored on um, were stowed beneath the bathtub in february Nelson and other residents of cranley gardens wrote letters of complaints that the drains were all blocked and the situation had become intolerable so basically Nelson was flushing whatever body parts he could down the toilet and then storing the, the bigger ones because he didn't have a better place to put them um and that's obviously what people found when they um pulled apart the drains to see what was going on, was these, these bones from, like, fingers and toes and ears, um, and teeth and stuff like that that he could get out were all flushed down the toilet, um, which is just bananas, I don't know why you'd ever think that was, like, a good idea, and actually, I didn't write it in here, but I'm pretty sure Nilson was one of the people who complained about the drains being clogged, I remember that being so weird that, like, you know why the drains are clogged, so why would you complain about it, because you're just, it's obviously you guy because you're flushing these body parts down the toilet um yeah I don't know that's just silly to me that you would call the whatever call the police or call the um drain people because you're flushing people body parts down the toilet you know um so Nelson was thought to have killed 12 to 15 young men and boys between 1978 and 1983 He would later say in 1992 that some of the unidentified people he had merely fabricated. Of the eight identified victims, only three had permanent addresses, which were Holmes, Allen, and Ockenden, and the rest of the men who fell to Nilsen were vagrants, runaways, or sex workers. Um, Nilsen was sentenced to a, quote, whole life tariff in 1984, meaning he would never be released from prison uh, punishment he understood and accepted. Um, On May 10th, 2018, Dennis Andrew Nilsen was complaining of stomach pains. Two days later, on May 12th, 2018, he passed away in York Hospital. He was 72 years old. Um, that's the story of Dennis Nilsen, guys. Um, he's kind of, (laughs) kind of a lot. Um, you know, like I said during this whole thing, it's one of those if you look at the situation, there's so many opportunities this could have been stopped, and that's what's fascinating about it. So I hope you liked listening to my old blog post called Dennis Andrew Nelson, and this has been Cabernet and True Crime. Uh, it's True Crime Tuesday, so I will see you um, Sunday, for because the, now all the... I'm really good at words today, apparently. Um, all the serial killer shorts are moved to the podcast for the time being, as stated previously. If you missed it in you know, one of the last podcasts, one of them. (laughs) Uh, yeah. Hopefully your true crime Tuesday is just utterly delightful. I will see you Sunday.